Hello, and welcome back to what promises to be another exceptional episode of the Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club podcast. I'm Kit, one of the emergency trainees here at Westmead, and joining me this month in no particular order are... My name is Brachardi, I'm a BPT from Nepean, thanks for having me Hi, this is Shreyas, back for another month and excited to talk about a different topic this month. Hi, it's Harry, I'm one of the EDFRMOs here at Westmead. Hey, it's Caroline, back for another month. Uh, I'm Nicholas Wilkin, I'm a medical oncologist here at Westmead. Hi, I'm Sarah, I'm one of the basic physician trainees over at Westmead here. And I'm Pramod, back again for another month. This month, our topic is oncology, and we have a fascinating first paper, a relatively local first paper. Our physician trainee, Sarah Rashid, is going to present Dexmedetomidine for Hyperactive Delirium at the End of Life by Thomas et al. The paper that I've chosen to discuss today is actually, well, I'd like to say it's a little bit new, but it's been sticking around the works for probably the last five to ten years. Case reports here and there, and I think in the back of everyone's mind, it's always been a bit of a, well, why not? But this was the first pilot that was ever kind of approached for a palliative care unit by Benjamin Thomas et al., including some of our lovely healthcare physicians over in the Illawarra and Shoalhaven districts. So the paper is titled Dexmedetomidine for Hyperactive Delirium at the End of Life, an open-label single-arm pilot study with dose escalation in adult patients admitted to an inpatient PCU. Palliative medicine has been a little bit on the back burner. Many studies and Cochrane reviews turning up as inconclusive and insufficient evidence in order to affect policy and protocol and guideline formation. Although the number of studies has quadrupled in the last couple of decades compared to the prior history of palliative medicine, these largely have not had considerable yield. The area of terminal delirium has been just as difficult in the realm of research, with the definition of delirium itself changing amongst the different fields in medicine, that is geriatrics, ICU, palcare and the multifaceted and yet subset devoid nature of terminal delirium, that is terminal agitation and terminal restlessness, lends itself to a black hole of a topic that becomes hard to define, hard to assess, with such as randomised control trials and hard to treat. The most recent RCTs largely compare neuroleptics versus placebo and don't really show very much of a benefit either way. Although taking into account that those being treated in such cases were of mild delirium category, Given the lack of finite results in recent trials, it's hard to refute the long-standing management algorithm for agitation in this very vulnerable population, a population in which attempting research proves difficult as treatment is assessed as largely individual or family experience outcome. So the study that we're talking about today is a pilot that has shaken waters a little. In context of use, there have been attempts at such in the past in the US and in Europe. However, they've not really made it past ethics or recruitment staging. The ones written were more so case studies, aligning themselves on the DEXMED bandwagon. Current guideline in the realms of PALCAN and supportive medicine for terminal agitation suggests treatment with neuroleptics, benzos, and occasional barbiturates. The priority is providing comfort, largely achieved by the administration of such medications, however, at the cost of wakefulness, rousability, and interaction with their loved ones. And this is where this paper comes in. So... What is Dexmed? It's an imidazole derivative used for procedural sedation, mechanical ventilation in ICU and anaesthetic settings. 
It's a selective alpha-2 adrenergic receptor agonist in the CNS, resulting in a variegation of things. So reduced CNS activity, that is rousable sedation similar to non-REM sleep, decreased severity and propensity of delirium through GABA receptor sparing and reduced anticholinergic activity, and opiate-sparing analgesic, inhibition of the nociceptive neurotransmission in posterior horn with some added effects of decrease in secretions, that is salivary and GIT, and potential antiemetic benefits that are being researched at present. The interest raised was due to the findings of Dexmed reducing delirium in the post-op ICU settings, with it being used in such cases now relatively all over the world, in particular the US and Europe. So the aim of this study was to describe the potential reduction in delirium and presence of rousable sedation with Dexmed in palcare patients suffering terminal delirium, with a secondary aim to determine whether reduced opiate requirements were observed. Now, as the method, it was open to recruitment for 18 years and over with a strict exclusion criteria, and this was to allow abidance by ethics. So severe renal failure with an EGFR of less than 30, severe liver failure with a MELD score greater than 30, severe left ventricular ejection fraction of less than 20%, however, no clause of ischemic heart disease, etc., and non-English speaking background. The inclusion criteria included a diagnosis of delirium as per the DSM-4, uh, an MDAS, which is a memorial delirium assessment scale of greater than 13, which delineates moderate to severe delirium, hyperactive symptoms, that is psychomotor agitation, hallucinations, delusions and restlessness, non-reversible causes or the clause that they are not for treatment of reversible clauses, and clinician prediction of survival of less than seven days, that is terminal. Consented patients were then excluded if their heart rate was less than 65 and a MAP below 70. And this was taken on initiation only with no further hemodynamics monitored. It was a single centre pilot study aimed to recruit 22 patients in a single arm open label study undertaken in a 15 bed inpatient palliative care unit. I understand these do, I guess, lead to quite a few questions in the methodology, but let's go through. They use the MDAS, which is a validated delirium assessment score, and the RAS-PAL, which is a validated sedation scale. Pro-rata scores were calculated where patient sedation disallowed assessment, and they did end up needing to use this quite often, about 79 pro-rata scores amongst the 22 patients through the course of their admission. The patients were all commenced on baseline tier of a continuous subcutaneous uh, infusion of Dexmed at 0.3 micrograms per kilogram per hour with an escalation to a second tier of 0.6 micrograms as required. And this was conducted if the MDAS remained greater than 13 for three consecutive assessments or greater than three PRNs required. Rescue meditations were local protocol based, that is midazolam 2.5 to 5 milligrams or haloperidol 1 to 2.5 milligrams subcut for refractory agitation and other rescue medi- medications were as per the local clinicians. As a single arm, the outcomes were designed as a reflection of pre-initiation. So the delirium severity changed with daily MDAS scores, arousability aiming for a RASPAL of minus one to minus three, and secondary outcome of opiate use tracked as a percentage change from the initial opiate dose. Of the 22 patients, 11 remained on Dexmed infusion until death. Of the remaining 11, one improved, likely thought to be delirium secondary to sepsis, and 10 crossed over, and this is the key number. So almost 50% crossed over into current gold standard, with 27% of those crossing over due to family requests. These patients were not moderate severe delirium as per their MDAS, and a median survival after crossover of approximately 23 hours. 
the agents that were used post-ex-med cessation were at the clinician's discretion. In the categories, a reduction in MDAS was shown after initiation of the infusion in both tiers. However, over the five days, a majority of the population required escalation to tier two in order to retain the MDAS benefits. The RASPEL scores fluctuated with a mean of minus 2.9, however, a variability not within the target range, that is, up to minus five, thought to be secondary to the fluctuating nature in responsiveness and interassessor variability. Verbal interaction by patients were noted, however not qualitatively assessed, with 21 on Tier 1 and 11 on Tier 2, all alluding to comfort, except one, which alluded to pain. The secondary outcome did not reach the presumed endpoint, that is, 15 of the 22 required an increase in opiate dosing, with approximately an average of 78% increase. Although this is not an endpoint, there were no negative survival benefits, 72.5 hours compared to literature of 24 hours post-diagnosis of terminal delirium. And there was a notable reduction in the use of other PRN medications, such as for uh, salivary as well as gastrointestinal secretions. It's a really interesting paper that definitely challenges current practice. As you quite rightly point out, there's a few methodological challenges to this paper. Maybe you could highlight some of those strengths and weaknesses for us. Right from the beginning, they've, they've kind of delineated that they were quite limited in terms of their finances. Dexmedetomidine is not a cheap drug, um, particularly for a palliative care unit that doesn't bring in a lot of money for the hospital itself. That alone, along with the fact that seeking ethics for a drug that requires monitoring in the average population, lends itself to quite testy waters that they've had to tread in order to be able to conduct this. I would start with, it was hard to find some strengths except for the positive outcome that was achieved, or at least the question that it's now created in people's minds in order to pursue more research. They did use delirium-validated tools that were known to the assessors, so they used the MDAS and the RASPEL, acknowledging that there are no particular validated tools for the end-stage kind of terminal delirium um, population. I guess some weaknesses, there was considerable bias. So we can consider selection bias, observer bias, performance bias, the lack of interassessor variability and the consideration of the fact that even looking at the population, they had overrepresentation of males um, over females. They had a largely cancer-predominant population rather than chronic and stage diseases as per their exclusion criteria. These in itself make it very hard to extrapolate this data towards the general population. It's a single arm, so you can't really comment on the efficacy without the fact that there is a control group and the fact that there is such a large exclusion criteria. I don't know very many diseases that don't have particular multi-organ involvement as part of their pathophysiology. The other thing that I will mention is the requirement of pro rata scoring for patients that were over-sedated. This makes it hard to actually, I guess, then consider MDAS as a validated tool to be used in this setting when 79 of the 122 times that MDAS were conducted were in fact pro rata. The other thing that they did mention that I would consider a weakness but I think is something that needs to, I guess, be thought of a little bit further is the fact that there was no qualitative data that was, I guess, gathered by the group. There was no data as to the level of comfort that was achieved by the commencement of the infusion. Um, it was just noted as a positive or a negative comment by the patient. There was no post 
bereavement survey that was conducted with the families and yet 27% of the crossover group was done as a result of families requesting the patient to be pulled over to standard of care. So a, a lot of this is very much up in the air and very much without an answer and that's probably something that you know in the now follow-through trial I would consider addressing. Yeah I think that's an important point to highlight Sarah is that this was initially just a pilot study. And I thought for a pilot study, it did an excellent job of demonstrating the fact that dexmedetomidine has promise in this indication. I was sort of interested in a lot of the exclusion criteria, and I wonder if it was almost because of the ethics committees, because from my point of view, I don't really understand why you would be too concerned about the organ impairments if you're prescribing it with the idea that someone is comfortable before death. Similarly, I, I noticed in the paper that there was a requirement to check the patient's heart rate and blood pressure to ensure that they were within normal parameters before the patient could be enrolled, which, again, seems to defeat the purpose of doing this in a patient who is within the last week of life. Um, having said that, one of the things that the paper seemed to highlight was that patients were actually able to state themselves that they were comfortable and pain-free. And I think... You know, we've all dealt with these end-of-life patients and, you know, for, for the most part, if they're well palliated, we consider them to be asleep. Um, and so I think this was potentially a very positive outcome that's different to the current, currently available treatments for this, um, you know, for this particular indication. I agree, Shreyas. Thanks for that. It does go against what we kind of think is gold standard for agitation, which is sedation. But in fact, sedation is the unfortunate adverse effect of the medications that we use to treat the delirium, understanding that we are very limited um, in pharmacotherapy. It's a very not sexy subject and it's very non-lucrative. And yet, you know, towards the end of life, it's probably the thing that brings us the most comfort and care. Dexmedetomidine, I suppose, isn't a medication that in ED we're particularly familiar with. Maybe Pramod might be able to explain uh, to our listeners how Dexmed works. Being a tox fellow. Sarah, you went through quite clearly in terms of the pharmacology of it. Essentially, I guess, for us crit critical care folk, the, the main sort of other arm of centrally acting alpha-2 agonist therapy would be clonidine, reasonably frequently used in the intensive care unit setting for a lot of uh, indications primarily autonomic dysfunction related or alternatively for sedation in intubated and ventilated patients or in that peri-extubation phase. Clonidine also obviously having wide indications in the community for a lot of, a lot of treatment of behavioural disorders in children being the primary indication. And certainly our exposure to clonidine in the ED at least is primarily in an overdose setting, particularly in young children who have taken you know, older brother or older sister's medications as, as an accident. Now, differentiating the two, I guess you mentioned that Dexmed is much more specific for alpha-2 receptor subtypes, and that's true. I think just on basic pharmacotherapy level, there are three receptor subtypes for alpha-2, A, B, and C. That differentiation is reasonably important. A and C are the ones that we usually get the therapeutic effects for Dexmed, being the autonomic changes, the sedative effects, and the analgesic properties. And then the B receptor subtype uh, is the paradoxical subtype, and that can sometimes cause hypertension and tachycardia, uh, and that's primarily present in the vascular smooth muscle beds. And so you can see a, some paradoxical dose-related changes with Dexmet, which is why its use has primarily been limited to high-expertise environments, that being the intensive 
intensive care setting. Look, it's interesting. I found the paper really fascinating. I think critical care and palliative care in general, both very pragmatic specialties. You're dealing with large populations, but lots of heterogeneity in the disease processes that you interact with. So by the nature of the population that you interact with, it's impossible to conduct consistent studies because no two patients are the same. And then that's, you know, that's taking aside the ideal research goals of clearly defined research parameters with clearly defined outcomes, which palliative care patients defy just by their very definition. So I think judging by the nature of the specialty within which this study was conducted, it's probably been performed to the best uh, from a pragmatic uh, level. And I think there is definitely a scope for the addition of dexmetomidine into ED. That obviously comes with a lot of nursing and medical uh, expertise that needs to be delivered from ICU to us uh, because certainly our nursing staff are not familiar with it. And I, I would argue that the vast majority of the medical staff also wouldn't be too familiar with the use of dexmetomidine. The reason it's important with dexmetomidine is because it's an infusion, the titrations are all going to be patient. These are all patient-orientated outcomes that we're dealing with in this study. And, you know, having worked in Westmead ED for years now, it's a challenging environment to monitor patient-orientated outcomes because, you know, these patients are often in single rooms just for comfort measure. And then, you know, you've got one to four nursing within those single rooms. No one's sitting there asking them how they're feeling. And so you then run the risk of overshooting or undershooting your treatment. That's the main precautionary thing with running infusions in the ED. And that's why all of our infusion medications are run in the resus bay. So if you think about adrenaline, isoprenaline, all of those medications that need close monitoring for monitor-associated outcomes, which are much easier to monitor than patient-orientated outcomes, you've got that ease of use there. And so that's probably the main challenge with dexmetomidine and implementing it in the ED, at least from a sort of consultant perspective, I find that the main challenge. As you alluded to, um, there are some similarities between dexmedetomidine and clonidine sort of pharmacologically. Given that clonidine is so much more available in the ED and also probably has slightly different pharmacokinetics, do you think that, you know, pending further sort of validation of this drug for this indication, do you think there could be a role for using clonidine when dealing with terminal agitation in the ED? It's a tricky question. I don't think anyone really understands the pathophysiology from a neuroreceptor perspective of delirium. So what we're really doing is kind of just scattershotting. My concern is polypharmacy, it's just like anything, right? You treat the delirium with medications, and then after a certain point, other medications prolonging and protracting the delirium. We found this out with benzodiazepines. We're slowly discovering the adverse effects of you know, free-balling antipsychotic use, particularly in our elderly patients. And so I approach any new pharmacotherapy with a deal of ca- with a bit of caution. Clonidine would be useful. I don't think it's unreasonable to give it. But I think where if you're looking at real bang for buck improvements in the management of acute delirium and agitation in the ED setting, really non-pharmacotherapy is where your money's at. If we can get these patients out of the ED or into a environment that they're not regularly being moved from bed to bed or from location to location, I think you'll see a vast improvement in outcomes there with less risk. It's sort of the way I look at it. But there probably is a role for clonidine. I don't think it's unreasonable to think about it as another thing that we can use. You also have to remember that the clonidine does have some mutu receptor, right? and a lot of these patients are also on opiates. So then you're sort of balancing that sedation side effects of the opiate analgesics that you're giving them for their pain, uh, along with maybe over-sedating them with clonidine. There's actually um, an interesting paper that's coming out of Oslo that's looking into clonidine for delirium in the elderly. So not quite the palcare setting but I think because everyone's been so scared to use it I must say we don't use it very much on the wards except when 
the acute pain service comes around and you know prescribes it for us neuropathic kind of quantity we don't really use it very much on the wards but I think the initial pharmacokinetic like deconstruct aspect into the elderly population has come back with doses that they're prepared to use this group yeah it's, it's interesting I think it's a reasonable option just sort of imagining in my head the agitated elderly patients that I deal with none of them are wanting to take anything orally uh, ever Hence the reason why the propensity for parenteral administration of medications has really gone through the roof. That's associated with a whole bunch of other terrible, terrible outcomes. Uh, and certainly having done a Jerry's term as a registrar and having had those discussions with our geriatric service, uh, it's made me so much more cautious, so much more cautious in using antipsychotic medication to sedate my elderly patients. But, you know, sometimes it's just what needs to happen. So I don't know how practical it would be from a, you know, just give them a tablet of clonidine. But I think from a, from a pharmacotherapy perspective, just isolating that, it's not, not unreasonable to think that it might be something we might be able to add. I guess, you know, by the very nature of the study being a pilot study, it kind of lends itself to speculation. And so that on that note, Prof Wilkin, I was interested, there is a substantial population of oncology patients who are palliative but not end of life. They might be receiving palliative chemotherapy they might be uh, still having antibiotic treatment for their infections, but they're still considered to be, you know, in the last phase of their life and, you know, presumed to die reasonably short time frame. In that group, would you eventually, you know, with further research, consider utilising this drug as an adjunct to ensure that they have comfort during their inpatient admissions? Yeah, look, I mean, I think, as we've all acknowledged, it's a pilot study. I agree with what you said before that, you know, I think it, it's been well done in the sense that there are obviously a lot of constraints there. It's a difficult population to, to do studies in. And although we all end up saying every single time we, we discuss a paper at the end and we wait for a randomised controlled trial, well, you know, you, you can't always do randomised controlled trials. And there are definitely in oncology precedents for single-arm studies changing practice. If something is extremely effective you may actually only need a single arm study and if if you'd had this with just a little bit more rigor and say 200 patients and you had family and patient feedback and all sorts of things you know you might you might conclude that that's this seems to be very effective and I don't need more evidence you know so not that we should be discarding methodological judgments but you also have to be pragmatic and I think if the goal or one of the goals for this kind of terminal agitation is to remove the agitation, reduce the delirium, but not put them to sleep, you know, that's a really good outcome if you can manage. If someone's lying there quietly with their eyes closed, but a family member can hold their hand and say, how are you? And they say, I'm okay. You know, that's a good, that's a really good outcome. And as you say, it's, it's better than, and occasionally people are just so agitated or it is a major issue that we haven't got on top of. Everyone thinks that happens all the time. It doesn't. It's quite uncommon. But, you know, sometimes you are left with just sedating the patient and, you know, it's kind of a pity in a way. And clearly that's what was happening with some of these patients, wasn't it? It was the family was saying, I want them more sedated. <laughs> I want them more sedated. That's what it sounds like. But, uh, you know, I think it's um, all the caveats of small numbers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's a nice study and it's an, an area of human need where, as you said, Sarah, there's not a lot of financial motivation there's not drug companies lining up giving us lots of money to do studies it's always going to have to be academic type studies but I would say that this is a nice toe in the water and if you were then trying to apply for a grant money to do another study having done this one would you know stand you in good stead. Yeah and certainly they mentioned that a follow-up study is in the works which may be a little bit more extensive. 
Rotati, you have a fair bit of experience both in the inpatient oncology setting and also in geriatrics um, at Nepean. How do you see this sort of a protocol playing out on the wards? I'll echo some of what Sarah said in that we don't use clonidine or dexmedetomidine really at all on the wards. It's not something that the staff or the nurses are very familiar with. So I think that would be a big barrier um, when we're monitoring for new drugs. I think it would be interesting to see, and one of the things that spoke to me from this article is the 10 patients that were crossed over to standard care from the DEX. Perhaps we could explore whether it could be used as an adjunctive therapy. So instead of switching them over to the midazolam that we use or the barbiturates that we use, could we use it in conjunction with that and therefore lessen some of the doses required of the midaz and the barbiturates that we use and thus reduce some of the side effects such as the sedation that we're seeing. I think that would be very interesting to see in a future study rather than switching them over to what we call standard of care because there's really very little evidence in the field of palliative care in general. And certainly that seems to reflect how it tends to be used in the anaesthetic setting is as an adjunct which provides sedation and tends to sort of reduce the usage of other anaesthetic agents. So, Sarah, what would be your take-home points from that paper? I've got a a couple of take-home points, I guess. One of the things that I would like to premise this is exactly what Pratati had mentioned earlier, is that there is very minimal kind of evidence that almost, you know, even behind our standard of care, which is midazolam, you know, the neuroleptics and the barbiturates, and yet they are our standard of care and they're our go-to But from this paper, I guess it it allows us to open our eyes and think a little bit more laterally and with medications that, yeah, we're very not comfortable using normally. Terminal delirium is quite distressing for patients and the families. Largely, the treatment at present is aimed at comfort as a priority. However, this is with a very big expense of wakefulness and interaction. Benzos are the mainstay, along with neuroleptics, at augmenting terminal delirium. And that's what you can find in guidelines and protocols across Australia, the US and Europe. That hasn't changed for the last few decades. More research needs to be done into agents such as dexmedetomidine that could potentially allow for a better sedated experience in the context of terminal agitation. And more research needs to be done into the patient and family's experience of the dying process because this clearly affects change in terms of terminal patient management. So at the end of the day, we're not just treating the patient, we're treating that family. That family is clearly having quite large effect on how we end up treating the patient. So there's no point doing a study of one without the other. And just before we close, I'd like to throw a shout out to Dr. Ben Thomas, who both Brutati and I worked in the Central Coast when he was a palliative care advanced trainee. One of the most lovely people that I've ever met, and I really hope he's still wearing his bow ties. Fantastic. Thank you all so much. follow this with Harry Hong, one of our core members, presenting a paper by Wang et al. uh, entitled Fatal Toxic Effects Associated with Immune Checkpoints Inhibitors, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Thanks, Harry. Hello. I'd like to first start off by saying whenever we get patients um, in ED and they're on some sort of MAB, 
the only thing I hear is the last syllable. And <laughs> the initial first few syllables don't click into my head. Fortunately for me, I've got Prof Wilkins with me today. But I'll be presenting this paper. So it's a paper from 2018 titled Fatal Toxic Effects Associated with Immune Checkpoint Inhibitors. These inhibitors target cytotoxic T lymphocyte antigen and program DEF1 slash ligand 1. And they're used in various cancers and they seem to be increasing use of either or or both of these as a combination. Now, with any sort of immunotherapy, there are associated complications. But what we've found in the literature so far is that there are hardly any studies that describe many fatal adverse events. The largest one prior to this only reporting nine fatal events. So what this paper has aimed to do is look at multiple databases and analyze data and hope to shed some light on some of these fatal events. Now, these include involvement of any organs, most commonly the colon, liver, lungs, pituitary, thyroid, skin, uncommonly and more seriously, it can affect the heart and the brain. So there are three parts to this paper or three data sets that they've analyzed. First one being the visualized database, which is a WHO database of safety case reports and adverse drug reactions with 19 million case reports, supposedly. They have narrowed it down to 31, approximately 31,000 immune checkpoint inhibitor-related case reports. And out of those, 613 fatal adverse effects have been described. The inclusion criteria is known adverse events with fatal events attributed to drug toxicity only. I mean, the exclusion criteria include patients with resolving toxic effects, unknown outcomes, or known or presumed cancer-related deaths. And the data is aimed to, I guess, classify and quantify the number of adverse reactions depending on how it affects what system, depending on the exact therapy that's been given. As I said, 613 fatal adverse effects have been described. Out of those, 193 were associated with IP lumumab monotherapy, 333 with anti-PD-1 or PDL one which is a programmed death ligand that I mentioned earlier, and 87 combination. Most of these uh, populations were largely being treated for melanoma, but the PDL one monotherapy was mostly for lung cancer. Analysis of this subset of data found that combination therapy had multiple concurrent adverse effects from the monotherapy, 27% versus 14% for ipilimumab monotherapy and 15% for anti-PD-1, PD-L1. And what was interesting was that the type of fatal adverse events differed markedly between the regimens. So with the ipilimumab monotherapy, the most significant was the colitis slash diarrhea, which contributed to 70% of the adverse events, followed by hepatitis and pneumonitis. In comparison with anti-PD-1, and the combination, there was a wider distribution with things like, again, colitis was always quite high up, but pneumonitis, hepatitis. With the combination, there was also a higher rate of myocarditis um, and myositis, 25% and 13% respectively. Myositis and myocarditis frequently co-occurred. Other effects included infrequent dermatologic, hematologic, endocrine toxic effects. Now, what was interesting, though, was despite myocarditis not being the most common adverse events, it had the highest fatality rates, with the lowest fatality rates being seen in hypophysitis, adrenal insufficiency, and colitis. 
The second set of analysis was a multi-center analysis across multiple centers, including Westmead. Shout out to the Center of Excellence. The inclusion criteria included deaths judged as probably or definitely treatment related by the treating physician. And the exclusion criteria was just all other deaths, including cancer-related deaths and unclear situations related with deaths. So this data set specifically looked at analyzing the type of adverse events, the symptoms, the onset, the immunosuppressive treatments, the hospitalizations, concurrent adverse events, and time of death. Among a sample of 3,545 patients, 21 fatal adverse events were reported, which equates to about 0.59%. Median age was 72, often with multiple comorbidities. Patients who were older died more frequently than those who were younger. Again, fatal effects described include myocarditis, neurological effects, colitis, hepatitis, and nine patients had more than one concurrent adverse effect. Interestingly, the median time to onset was 15 days from commencing the first treatment cycle, um, including 11 cases within 20 days. Although if we break it down into regimen-specific timing, especially when combined with data from visualized reports, with monotherapy with ipilimumab and monotherapy with anti-PD-1, PD-L1, the timing of onset uh, was increased to 40 days. Um, and with combination, it was 14.5 days. In all these patients, what was interesting was that they measured the median time to uh, steroid use. Most patients received steroids rather early in the disease, but the median time was still five days. And, and they theorized that it was due to patients presenting with very nonspecific symptoms um, and uh, difficulty with diagnosis initially. And the third group of data that was analyzed was a uh, meta-analysis of data published on PubMed between 2003 and 2018. Again, inclusion criteria was using these immune checkpoint inhibitors, and exclusion criteria included uh, a pediatric population combination with other agents other than these ICIs, less than 10 patients, single dosing, and treatment following a hematopoietic stem cell treatment. This set of data identified 19,000 patients with 122 fatal drug-related adverse events. Again, not a very high number. PD-1L1 inhibitors demonstrated lower fatal toxic effects compared to CTLA-4, which is dipolumumab, or, or a combination. However, there was no difference between the PD-1L1 um, and between the CTLA-4 or combination. Now, interestingly, the meta-analysis actually looked at the doses for each therapy as well. Specifically for ipilimumab, in a dose of 3 milligrams per kilo, there were less or fewer fatal adverse events reported compared to patients who were treated with a dose of 10 milligrams per kilo and was statistically significant. And looking at ipilimumab in combination therapy, however, a dose of 1 milligram per kilo had no difference compared to a dose of 3 milligrams per kilo. Um, interestingly, when compared to the previous uh, or the other uh, previous data sets, colitis was the most common adverse event, and cardiac events was a much less common event. However, again, the fatality rates were quite high for cardiac events. So I guess how this will affect everyone's practice, or the good things and good and the bad and the ugly. So I guess I just started uh, talking about the bad stuff or the adverse effects. But obviously, these immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy 
have been reported to have good outcomes for patients with cancer. There has been an increase in the number of patients being treated with these agents. And as I had alluded to earlier, the risk of fatal events is actually quite very low, especially compared to other interventions. For example, platelet doublet chemo was a 0.9%. Allergenic stem cell transplant was 15%. And a surgical therapy, for example, Whipple's, have a much, much higher rate of fatal adverse events. Treatment-related death rate for immune checkpoint inhibitors was reported to be 0.36 to 1.23%. Again, substantially lower than basically near 100% fatality rate for metastatic solid tumors. What this data tells us is some things that we can be vigilant about and look out for. Specifically, those patients presenting with myositis or myocarditis with non-specific symptoms who are currently being treated with a, a immune checkpoint inhibitor who's day 14 post-initiation of therapy teaches us to be a bit more vigilant and a bit more careful about investigating and providing treatment for these patients. These patients can also have further frequent multi-organ involvement on top of their initial presenting complaint as well. Another thing that this data tells us is to be wary of some adverse events For example, colitis, we have a very set way of treating colitis. Um, We give them fluids, we give them uh, top of on the electrolytes, et cetera, et cetera. Even then, um, there was was still a large proportion of these patients who uh, suffered bad outcomes. So again, with this data set, what this tells us is that a warning to be active and more proactive in, in management of these specific subgroup of patients Another thing to be wary of, I guess, is with many of these adverse effects, first line of treatment would include providing steroids. And as mentioned previously, the time taken for steroids to be administered had a median delay of five days, which can prove quite fatal for a group of patients. I'm with you, Harry. I get very, very nervous when seeing any patient on a MAB that comes in with anything. Coming back to the study itself for a second, they did comment on the limitations of the study. I also get very nervous when I read a study that deals with exceptionally rare outcomes or reasonably rare outcomes and quite subjective metrics for evaluating those outcomes. Um, Maybe you could comment on some of the limitations that this study uh, touched upon. First limitation is that even having analysed such a huge group of patients, it seems that rate of fatal events is quite rare. So it's difficult to really characterise and draw conclusions from just a handful of patients. Another limitation is that in the multicenter analysis, that is quite limited in that it includes only academic centres with extensive immune checkpoint inhibitor usage, uh, which means that the staff are familiar and experienced in, in treating patients with these therapies. However, in, say, for example, smaller hospitals or uh, any hospital really that's not familiar with these therapies, not uh, familiar with how to treat um, its associated complications, and these rates may be much higher. Another issue is that the cause of fatal events in these patients can, can be quite hard to discern. For example, we may think that a patient may have passed from hepatitis, but there could be a lot of confounding features. For example, 
uh, metastatic spread into the liver or hyperperfusion and end organ damage arising from that. Prof Wilkin, maybe you could shed some light on um, the use of these MABs and maybe what we need to look out for in the emergency setting and how we can better deal with complications of some of these agents. Yeah, sure. Look, I think, I think just stepping back a bit, the really important issue that's been raised because these drugs for not all cancers but for some cancers have been total game changers. So they're not going away. So when I was a registrar, metastatic melanoma, median survival 12 months, no, nothing really made a difference. Now, if you give them a combination of these two, two drugs, and that's where you see more of the side effects, it seems like about 30 to 40% of them are alive at five years and have probably been cured. So you're not, you're not going to avoid that drug. <laughs> and I think a useful kind of analogy just to think about it, because I think it's, it's really tough being an ED where you've got to know something about everything. I, you know, there's well, heaps of things I know nothing about, but <laughs> you, you, you can't afford to know nothing. Um, if you think about 50 or 60 years ago, when people had been giving various chemotherapy drugs to kids and adults with leukaemia and finding that you know, it started to work, and then people started spraying it around and going, well, let's try some solid tumours and see what happens, in a in retrospect, not very sophisticated way. People died of septic deaths, you know, really frequently. But now, of course, we've got protocols for all, all the solid tumour stuff. You don't wait to see what the cultures show, etc. You just measure the neutrophils, and if they're low, you give antibiotics straight away and so on. So everyone can do that now. Every, every intern in ED knows how to do that. And virtually never die of septic chemotherapy-induced sepsis in, in solid tumours, different in you know, leukaemias and bone marrow transplants, that's a lot more complex. So it's a little bit like that here, and, and even this, this document is sort of almost slightly historical now, like this was in the early days. I just had a look at the authors, so three of them are melanoma doctors in Sydney, and it was really all the melanoma doctors around the world just, just chatting to their friends and saying, let's summarise, you know, the, the, the data, because it was all really new, you know. And a, a lot of the studies were still phase one studies. There were phase one studies that ended up with 200 patients in them because it was the only treatment that actually worked in melanoma, for example. And now there's lots and lots of bladder cancer, kidney cancer, lung cancer, lots of indications. So it's like we've got to learn all over again how to manage these, how to manage these toxicities. And what you said, Harry, is right that you know, picking it is... And, and I've noticed, because this is really only less than 10 years old, this, this, this field, I, I, so I've seen it. We oncologists have got better at picking stuff. So the breathless patient, you know, is it is a drug-induced pneumonitis and, it, and it's not always that easy. There's other things going on. They might have lymphangitis, they've got pleural effusions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the way I, firstly, the way I conceptualise these things is these two broad classes of drugs, and presumably there'll be more coming along, but it's the CTLA-4 inhibitors and the PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibitors. So the PD-1, PD-L1, that's sort of distal part of the immune system. I'm not an immunologist, I don't really understand it, but it's, it's, it's looking at the T-cell effector at, the, at, at that stage. And so that tends to be a somewhat more restricted bit of the immune system that you're stirring up, and so somewhat less toxic in terms of overactivity of the immune system. Whereas the CTLA-4 is more to do with the antigen presentation and the, the immune system thinking about it and generating signals and stuff. I sort of think of it as more proximal, it's sort of in nodes or thymus or wherever the hell all that stuff happens bone marrow, etc. And so that's a, a more proximal sort of stirring up of the immune system and, and more likely to do more damage. And what you said is right. So the more serious things happen with ipilimumab, but we've learnt... So, 
you don't use it as in a dose of 10 milligrams per kilogram anymore because it's not really much more effective than three, but it's a lot more toxic. And the combination is, is what, what happens. And with the PD, PD-1, PD-L1, nivolumab, pembrolizumab, probably the two most common ones used in Australia, they're much, much less toxic. These things can happen, but much less frequently. Clinically, I reckon in the ED, the things to look out for is colitis, you're right. It needs to be, you know, there are gastroenterologists that take a particular interest in this and will urgently do sigmoid, sigmoidoscopies and biopsies and things like that. And you want to make an early decision, is this, going, is, this, is this what's happening and how bad is it? Is it a little bit of diarrhoea, I can watch it, and maybe 50 milligrams of prednisone, or is it a lot of diarrhoea and I want a pulse steroid, or is it, this looks like it's life-threatening, I need to give infliximab. And they're the sort of decision points that obviously an oncologist is, is, is going to make. But, so I think you're right. So taking the colitis really seriously, finding out what there are on, look it up, work out if it actually is, because <laughs> there are lots of other monoclonal antibodies that are nothing to do with PD-1 and, and so on, and, and think about that. Think about the breathless patient as well, and we don't always know. Sometimes you just have to say, okay, I'm not sure, this could be lymphangitis, it could, but the person's getting hypoxic, I can't have, afford to hang around. And the other thing is measuring cortisols, hypophysitis, so you can get itis of anything, it's amazing, <laughs> seeing what these drugs sometimes do. Guillain-Barre, you can get Guillain-Barre. The neurological stuff tends to be, I say this sort of somewhat meanly, it's a little bit like a cord compression. If you want to delay the diagnosis of a cord compression, get a neurology consult. Because they'll think about it, you know, you don't think about it, you just get an MRI and then, you know, and it's the same with some of the neurological stuff. It's, it can be very odd and difficult to piece together and so you don't want to get hung up on, I need to know where the lesion is, you just get to a point where I think this could be something to do with the Im- immune overactivation, I'm going to give some steroids. The hypotensive patient, cortisols. So I think the, the message is we're all learning, it's a new class of drugs with a completely different toxicity from what we're used to. Once you get the expertise, these are incredibly effective and low-toxicity drugs, but takes a while to get used to. And for example, I'm mainly a breast cancer doctor these days. These drugs don't have a big role in breast cancer, so I'm not nearly as good at picking the side effects as Matt Carlino, who's one of the authors on this thing, who's, who's the melanoma guy here. So he's been using these drugs for a long time. And when I'm on call, I will often call him, say, look, this is what I've seen. Do you think it could be... You know, so. I, even I'm seeking advice about it. So it's going to take a while for all you guys to get used to it. But I think they're the one... I mean, myocarditis you virtually never see and it's hard to pick, which is, I guess, why it's potentially very dangerous. But colitis is, is common and pneumonitis is common. They're probably the two commonest things that you would see. Look, one of the challenges we face as a specialty is we deal with like high-consequence, low-incidence sort of stuff. And obviously the other challenge is kind of standardising care across a, you know, all the EDs in all of Australia all of the time to provide consistent care to these patients. That was a beautiful summary. I think that I definitely just learned a lot just listening to, to sort of what you had to say. And like, I've tried to educate myself on this kind of stuff and it kind of goes in one ear out the other. And that's been doing that for a couple of years now, particularly with this sort of MAB therapy stuff. I struggle. I think my foundational immunology is just really poor. I think certainly, you know, as part of training, just for the ED sort of trainees out there, the first couple of years are very much learning what you know and certainly towards my end of the spectrum, I just sort of fellowed last year, I sort of have now become much more aware of what I'm ignorant about. And I have a very low threshold to ask questions and sort of doubt myself, check my own biases. And I think for medications such as these ones, 
that's certainly what's saved me in the past. I think I've only ever had one interaction with a patient who's been on a MAB therapy with a severe colitis. Um, and that patient was already admitted to our short stay unit uh, and being treated with supportive measures. And I just looked at the medications. I was like, I don't understand this stuff. Better just get the oncologist to come and just have a look because it doesn't sound right. And certainly from there, the patient went up to the intensive care unit sort of within 36 hours. And I found that that technique has helped, helped me, uh, certainly. And I think you're right. I think as we understand more and more, there'll be more and more targeted edu- education and we'll be able to become better as clinicians. But sort of the way things stand right now, I think everything's a little bit fuzzy. And so we do have to be very aware of how much, how little we know. Yeah, I agree. And I, I mean, I think the first step is to know that you need to ask. And as I say, even I ask. I mean, Matt Carlino uses drugs I can't spell, you know. So it's even within cancers, there's, there's sort of knowledge silos. So, um, so yeah, uh, yeah, ask. One of the reasons I was excited to cover oncology this month, as opposed to, say, cardiology a few months ago, is that in a certain sense, this is a subject that we spend a little bit less time educating ourselves about in the emergency department. And I think that's partly a function of the fact that medical oncology, you know, as a specialty, tend to be some of the most proactive people in terms of owning their patients, getting getting involved early and sort of taking that onus in terms of decision-making. In that sense, for me, the big take-home from this paper was that awareness. I was lucky enough to do a med-onc term as an intern, you know, probably when these drugs were relatively early in the piece. Now, I've found them fascinating. To me, it seemed as though you're sort of like unleashing the Hulk in terms of the immune system on the body. And so it could literally do anything, which is very cool and very terrifying at the same time. I just wonder what we should be prioritising in the emergency department, you know, when these patients come to us. I think obviously we've established that the first one is liaise with medical oncology and I, I think that that's something that we're fairly conscious of as emergency providers, you know, in dealing with any oncology patient. But let's just say we're in a smaller centre or it's overnight or we can't reach someone. What are the things that we need to be thinking of and are there initial management steps that we should be putting in place? I think the main thing is knowing that that's something that you need to think about and knowing that it's hard to predict and hard to diagnose, but just knowing that it's a possibility and then you're asking the oncologist. I think, I think that's really 90% of it. You know, the decision whether to actually start steroids or infliximab or this or that is probably that someone else is going to make that. So you, you don't, you're not likely to have the need to do something within minutes to hours, ED, unstable blood pressure, heart rates, that, you know, that's not likely it's 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 more where the mistakes are made is when it's not thought about it's i've talked to the gastro people i'll do this i'll do that they sit around for a day then they go up to water then they're in the corner and and it's a while before the penny drops because it's so hard to protocolize because it's so protein you know so 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 many variable things so i think just knowing that immunological toxicity is a thing now is probably you know that's the main game i think yeah, exactly. It's an interesting question. I think in these sort of niche areas, as the subspecialties and specialties have stepped forward in their care, which is great, I think, for patient outcomes, as emergency care providers, we have to remember that we, our job is, yes, to think about this as a potential differential, but then our other priorities to make sure it's nothing else as well. So we still need to be doing thorough workups of all of these patients. Our job is to exclude diagnoses as well as include diagnoses. We need to remember that. So the classic parallel that I would draw is, you know, when we're functioning in a hospital with a stroke team, you know, far too often I see emergency providers, you know, deferring all decisions to the stroke team 
our job in that setting is to exclude diagnoses as well, right? So we're the ones thinking about, could this be an aortic dissection? Could this be something else, another mimic? And that's our role in these patients as well. It's important to remember, yes, we don't have that high-level expertise but uh, to, to make those decisions about commencement and dosage of steroid therapies. But it's also our job to make sure that has, this perf- patient hasn't perforated a diverticulum and we're thinking, well, they're on some MAB therapy, so maybe it's just that, and, and deferring CT. I mean, these patients need urgent, thorough workup from an undifferentiated perspective. We have to acknowledge that, yes, there are going to be some biases when we review them. We're going to be thinking, well, maybe they're on this MAB, maybe the MAB, maybe we've thought of that. But then we also don't want to falsely fixate on that because these are low incidence complications. We have to remember that as well. These don't happen in all that many patients. So I think that's the other point I'd just like to make sure that everyone's aware of. It does still, doesn't take the onus off us to work up these patients from an undifferentiated perspective as well. So I'm just going to chase that a little bit further. If it's 2.30 a.m., we've got a critically unwell complication, so a severe colitis who's, in, who's shocked or a pneumonitis who's you know, severely hypoxic, and the medical oncologist isn't picking up the phone um, for whatever reason. Obviously, one of the main differentials in this setting is infective colitis or, you know, or a severe pneumonia or you know, an, an atypical pneumonia or something like that. Would I be putting the patient at harm by empirically starting steroids? No, I don't think so. I, th- I, th- I think, yeah, backs against the wall, you give some steroids, yeah. Yeah, remember that in the pointy end of medicine, like a patient who's that unwell, very few things have excellent evidence in that patient population. What has the best evidence is good, thorough, supportive care. Now, steroids, yep, have a role in this disease entity, but also have a role in general as well. You've got refractory uh, vasodilatory shock. You know, you're on your second-line vasopressor. Then you've got a role for steroids there just from the vasopressor. It does improve your uh, sort of monitor associate it doesn't improve uh, rates of death and mortality but it does improve your mean arterial pressure and so you can use it from it's got a utility in that as well like nothing has great evidence in, in that perspective and so yes when patients are that unwell throw everything and the kitchen sink at them but remember if you adhere to first principles you're going to do right by your patient regardless of the underlying disease entity if they've got hypoxic respiratory failure if that's from cardiogenic causes primary respiratory causes or another vascular cause, for example, massive PE. Yes, the diagnosis in the, in the next hour or two is really important, but the first 30 minutes of care is acute hemodynamic stabilisation, management of respiratory function and ventilation, and then your fundamental supportive care. It doesn't really change all that, what, what you do in the first couple of hours. For most diseases, obviously there are caveats. Would hydrosteroids mean hydrocortisone, prednisone, methylpred? <laughs> in someone who's that unwell... Methylpred is not something that's commonly prescribed in the ED and is not. And if you're not good at prescribing and not familiar with it, it can be unsafe. Prednisone is obviously impractical. When you're thinking about the time of onset, I think for acute severe asthma, for example, there is reasonable studies to suggest that intravenous hydrocortisone, oral prednisone, no difference in time of onset. And so I'd probably just be sticking with hydrocortisone because I'm very familiar with it. Yeah, agreed. Thank you for indulging me. Andreas, I feel like you want a playbook of, of exactly what to do in this, in this instance. Absolutely. I, I wanted to tease out because I'm 100% on board. I think, uh, as I said before, awareness is the key, really. And in 99.9% of these patients, it's just about recognising that this is a possibility involving MedOnc early and maybe raising the question early so that then perhaps, as Prof. Lincoln alluded to earlier, perhaps we could expedite the gastro referral. Maybe gastro would be, um, you know, maybe the scope happens sooner because we recognise that in hour one instead of in day one and so you know putting the patient on the pathway which i think is a core part of our job as emergency providers 
the scariest thing for me is, as, as you alluded to, these high consequence, low incidence cases, mm. when they happen overnight, it's often difficult to figure out what you're exactly meant to do. And so sometimes it's worth just sort of teasing it out. Harry, have you got any take-home points from this paper? I guess the take-home points, the combination of this paper plus Prof Wilkins' advice. Main take-home point is always ask. Don't be afraid to ask. And always have this diagnosis or the worst-case scenario on the back of your mind when you're seeing this patient. Fantastic. Thanks so much. I digress now. It's that time for our brief interlude. Prof Wilkin speaking on end-of-life care. So this is a piece I actually I wrote a sort of reflection on aspects of end-of-life end care. Let's see what you think. It's called The Dying Game. Some of you may have seen the film Never Let Me Go. The book had quite a profound effect on me. It's not very plot-driven, so what follows isn't much in the way of a spoiler. A fair bit of the book takes place in an English school in the mid-90s. You realise pretty soon that it's not an ordinary school. The kids are all parentless for a start. But you get to know a small group of characters and follow them through and beyond school. A quarter of the way through the book you know the fate of these characters, so the interest is not the what, but the why and the how. It's a meditation on mortality. The reason I mentioned this book is that just when I thought I had everything pretty much sorted, it pulled me up and it made me think, because the book has a lot to say about the importance of meaning in life. The characters discover that they have a destiny they can't really alter, which slowly begs the question, what's the point of it all? They cling to a belief system that might offer some hope of change or escape. They explore and embrace the importance of art as a meaning-giving form of expression, but somehow they need more. They start to search. I've never given a lot of thought to the euthanasia arguments that we wealthy Western societies can afford to have. I remember asking my uncle, a very wise man, about this. Thoughtful in the extreme, well-read, a deep thinker and a Jesuit priest. He said, and I'm paraphrasing from memory, well, it's obviously complicated, but there are more important issues to worry about. So, acknowledging but not accepting... Initially, I thought that this was a cop-out and he didn't want to commit either a personal or official opinion. But now I think that his was probably a pretty profound response. People are out of jobs, starving, killing themselves, not learning how to read, dying of preventable disease, and we are debating the luxury of how to end our privileged lives. But actually, I do have to think about this because of my job. I'm a cancer specialist. I've spent decades learning how to treat people with advanced and incurable cancer. I hear the talk about quality of life, don't prolong the suffering, you wouldn't do this to a dog. I get all that. Seriously, don't get me started. Because I can quote all manner of research that shows that you get better quality of life when the incurable cancer is treated better. People feel better. Obviously only for a while, but they feel better. That bit we know. But it's what happens later that concentrates the mind. So I'm in a clinic room and I'm talking to someone who had become my favourite patient. 
Naturally, you're not supposed to have a favourite patient, like favourite kids, and generally I don't. But sometimes it happens. This woman was younger than me, but we had a lot of shared experiences and she was a good, straight talker. Called it like it was. We had travelled a really long and varied journey together from first-time cancer diagnosis to decline into inevitability over nearly 10 years. I remember so well the start of it. Breast cancer in such a young person, the discussions about treatment, the talks with her, the inconclusive genetic tests, the fantastic husband, the young kids. At the beginning, the disease was really quite advanced and she needed to start with some chemotherapy to try and make surgery possible. In fact, that worked very well, for me at least. The tumour shrank a lot and she thought I was a genius, but she was exhausted. However, surgery was possible. The surgeon got it all. She had some radiotherapy and I prescribed some hormone-blocking tablets aiming to deal with any stray leftover cancer cells, hoping it wouldn't come back. And for a long time, it didn't. But one day I see a name on my list. Not yet favourite patient status, so just a name, but a name that worries me. I remember her well. I wasn't due to see her until the end of the year. She is here now. Has something bad happened? Well, yes, when I get to see the scan report. That was the beginning of a long journey. Long but too short. Terrible but beautiful. Trying, learning, funny, happy, sad. Now the task was control, not cure. Every decision needed to be a careful weighing up of the potential advantages of treatment on the one hand and likely side effects on the other. We always had detailed conversations about this. She listened, she asked the right questions, she talked things over with her husband, she decided. Somewhere along the line she became the favourite patient. I don't think I ever said this to her face, but in my mind she became FP and I've called her that ever since. Together we did a pretty good job. FP stayed well for a long time. Even when we had run out of hormone-based treatments and she was back on chemotherapy, she was still healthy enough to go away on family holidays. She managed to appear quite philosophical about things, although I don't know what was going on deep down. May as well get away while I can, she would say. We usually found time to talk about non-medical things too. Films to see, our kids, school holidays. We shared enough that it was a comfortable conversation and sometimes we would report back. Yes, I saw that film, I see what you mean. But the ending? Really? She wouldn't have done that. Yes, I grant you, could have been better. But after several years, things started to get tough. The cancer was finding new and nasty ways of putting her off balance, eventually quite literally. Headaches prompted a CT scan and a hard conversation about a tumour in the brain. So these steroids you're going to give me, they're a quick fix, right? I mean, they won't hold things forever, will they? No, but they will work fast in reducing the swelling in your head and giving back some strength in the leg. This will give us some time to work out what we do next, which is radiotherapy, I guess. I'll, talk, I'll need to talk to them. Not surgery. Possible. Could be dangerous. But what would the best fix be? I need more time. Well, the best fix would be surgery followed by radiotherapy, if surgery is technically feasible. I'll need to talk to the neurosurgeons. They'll want an MRI. So let's do that then. And she smiled, kind of hinting that she was dealing with an idiot, but that we had finally got there. I think we had nearly a year out of that, and I remember it as a happy-seeming period. There was some travel and a lot of family time together, but eventually things went bad again, and this time there wasn't a fix. So I'm in that clinic room now with FP. She is weak down one side of her body and in a wheelchair, not yet 40. 
So no more surgery, I assume? Afraid not. It really wouldn't help. I think we concentrate on having as much time as possible out of hospital and at home. How is home? Pretty good, actually. Hubby has time off work. The community nurses pop in once a day, give me a hand with a shower. The kids... Sorry, the kids sort of know. There wasn't a lot of time after that, but she was at home. I didn't get to see it. I guess it must have been very tough. But she was at home. Her family was with her. She knew what was happening, and she died comfortably. A week or two later, I saw her husband's name on my list. Please, God, I thought, don't tell me he has cancer now. But no, he just wanted to come and spend some time with me. We talked, and I struggled to keep it together. No regrets. If it had to happen, I'm glad it happened the way it did. You made it easier. Thank you so much. It was a lovely moment. So back to euthanasia. While for many people the topic of euthanasia is a question of moral interest that is somewhat removed from everyday, li everyday life, for me it's not, as you can see. Everyday life for me is talking to someone who is dying of cancer. And by the way, you'd be amazed at how often these people ask me about euthanasia. Almost never. Even so, I feel I need to have an opinion. A couple of clarifiers first. Painful deaths are much less common than most people think. Pain is not a given in cancer death, for example. And where there is pain, it is rare that good quality care cannot ameliorate it. Second, the concept of refusing treatment in the dying phase, say, not having antibiotics for pneumonia, is common practice, sensible and legal. So we are only dealing about the tough nuts here. Clearly there are no answers, otherwise we would have got there already. I actually think that acknowledging this is a good start and could play an important role in diffusing strong feelings. I also think that all but very strict fundamentalists would acknowledge that there are probably some circumstances, perhaps very extreme, where a dying person might be justified in ending their life actively or asking someone to do them to do that, to help them to do that. Others might feel that this should be a common occurrence. Either way, the question then becomes, should it be legalised? One initial instinct might be to prefer a quiet, laissez-faire situation here, and I used to think this, some gentle private discussion between doctor and patient, like we let Obama authorise drone killings of bad guys. But then, of course, that brings to bear the sensibility, judgment and preconceived beliefs of the clinician. Luckily, mine are impeccable, but what about some of my less worthy colleagues? So I reluctantly come to the notion that we do need some legislation for or against, rather than accept potentially dangerous ambiguity. I find it most helpful to approach this backwards. Do I feel so strongly that an active measure to abruptly end the life of a dying person is always such a terrible thing that I would make it illegal. I can't bring myself to say yes to that question. Do I like the idea? Not particularly. Can I justify outlawing it? No. In Never Let Me Go, there are lots of beautiful human moments, but in the end they all die. The surviving narrator cries. Was it all worth it? Guess that's for each of us to think on. The writer said he thought he'd written a sad book, and I agree. Yes, we all fade away, but do we have to disappear? One potential salvation is memory. So a while ago I decided to check on myself, make sure my memories of FP were accurate. 
that she was really there. But it proved difficult. The records? Well, obviously not the electronic type, which only came in recently. The letters? Well, the dictation system used now didn't apply then. I can't remember now, but I guess I was dictating into a recorder, ejecting tapes and passing them on to a secretary. Hospital notes will be sitting in a warehouse somewhere. So in a way, she has disappeared, but not in my head. I still remember. And there's one other record too. Do you want to know how the favourite patient came to be called that? It was one day when she was in the clinic. We were having our usual pretty relaxed talk about how treatment was going and what was the latest film to watch when I got called out of the room to sign a chemotherapy order for another patient. I apologised as I came back into the room and she handed me my phone, which I had accidentally left on the desk. A week or two later, the phone rattled in my pocket and I pulled it out. An incoming call and flashing up on the screen was favourite patient. It's still in my phone ten years later. That's survival instinct. And it worked. Every now and then, I'm trying to find Fred's number or Fenella's or Ferdy's, and as I scroll, it pops up. Favourite patient. I've never once thought of deleting it. I'm flooded with memories of that beautiful person. She lives on, and I'm glad we never got around to talking about euthanasia. Thanks, Prof. Next up, we have a paper on frailty. We've got Britati, one of our physician trainees at Nepean, discussing Bigenzoli et al.'s paper on screening for frailty in older patients with early-stage solid tumours. Thank you for letting me present this paper. Before I get into it, I thought I'd start with a little bit of background. First of all, what is frailty? It's a concept or a syndrome that's gained a lot of traction over the last few decades, but I think it remains quite vague to an individual clinician as it lacks a unified definition. Broadly speaking, it's been described as a state of vulnerability to stresses, which in medical oncology can be the cancer in and of itself or the treatments that we give to our patients. In the emergency department setting, it can be the acute illness that's driving their presentation. As it stands at present, there is no single standardised frailty assessment tool, but multiple have been validated in clinical practice to guide our clinical decision-making because of its prognostic value. The presence of frailty has been associated with increased mortality, increased frequency of hospitalizations, which poses a very significant economic burden, intolerance to treatments, as well as a reduction in quality of life. What is the purpose of this paper, or what is the question that's been posed by this study? It's to compare well-established and frequently used frailty assessment tools so the Belducci criteria for frailty and the freed frailty criteria, both of which require a lot of time resources to use and it's being compared to the Vulnerable Elders Survey or what I'll refer to as the VES 13, which is a simple survey-based questionnaire. This study is going to assess whether the VES 13 will correlate with the other two tools in recognising frailty and its ability to predict mortality and functional decline. I'll expand a little bit about what these frailty tools actually involve, as I'm sure most of us would not be familiar with using them. But why is it important that we use frailty tools at all? 
There's been multiple studies in multiple disciplines that have time and time again proven that a clinician's end-of-bed assessment of frailty correlates very poorly with its presence, despite what we might all think. Hence, it's imperative to use a validated scale when referring to the presence or absence of frailty rather than what we call our clinical judgment. Expanding a little bit further on the tools that I've referred to, the Belducci criteria for frailty has four separate domains. It includes age, ADLs, comorbidity, where the presence of three or more will score you a point, as well as geriatric syndromes. And these include delirium, dementia, depression, osteoporosis, incontinence, falls, neglect and failure to thrive. As you can see, based on that, there's a lot of time and resources that are allocated into diagnosing frailty. Osteoporosis in and of itself would require bone mineral density scan, plus or minus measuring calcium and vitamin D levels, and dementia and depression rely on their own tools for diagnosis. So while there's a lot of valuable information to be learned from a tool like this or a scale like this, the amount of time or resources that it requires is probably not one that anyone on this table would have. Similarly, when we look at the freed frailty criteria, we're looking at the domains of weight loss, weakness, which is measured by grip strength, which again requires special equipment to be able to measure, poor endurance and energy, and slowness, which requires a patient to be able to walk 15 feet, which is about four and a half metres. So we need to have that space available to us as well as low physical level of activity. Again, a lot of valuable information to be had from these frailty scores, but quite difficult to perform when we're talking about either the emergency department, on the wards or even clinic settings. In contrast to this, the VES 13 has four domains and they're all self-reported by the patients. So they include age, self-rated health, so whether the patients think they're in good or poor health, their ADLs and whether they're needing assistance with showering, shopping, money management, transfer and lighthouse work. And apart from money management, all of this information can actually be gathered from nursing or allied health notes and you don't even need to interview the patients. The last domain is difficulty with special activities. So this includes kneeling, performance of housework, lifting your arms above your shoulders, lifting 10 pounds, which is about four and a half kilos, and walking about 450 metres. Again, the patients aren't required to perform these activities as per this scale, but it's a self-report about whether they're able to do this or not. So coming back to the article, what it's looking at is using these tools, and patients are consecutively classified using one of three as frail or non-frail at the time of consent, and then they're followed up at six monthly intervals for a period of five years. The patient population that was looked at was elderly patients with cancer, so they had to be age 70 or above. They needed to have an early stage solid tumour for which they were referred to the medical oncology outpatient clinic, either for systemic adjuvant therapy or routine follow-up after surgical resection. It was a single centre study based in Italy, and the follow-ups were either a planned visit or a phone interview. Ultimately, 183 patients were recruited as 3.6% of patients had refused and only two patients were lost to follow up, which is an excellent reflection. The characteristics of the patients that remained, the mean age was 77 and the median ECOG performance status was zero. So we're looking at patients who are quite functional. The majority were women, 80%, and the majority had breast cancer, which reflects the specialty in the single centre that was studied. 
the outcomes that were looked at was twofold. So one was functional decline or functional events, which in this paper was defined as having an ADL for which they required dependence or a worsening of their previous dependence and the time to this functional event was measured. And the second outcome that was looked at was mortality. So the overall survival was measured as the interval between the date of informed consent and then death. In terms of the results, keeping in mind that most of these patients had an ECOG performance status of 0 or 1, 88% of patients that were enrolled, the frailty rates were 17% when looking at the freed frailty criteria and 25% when looking at the Belducci criteria and the VES 13. So one in four of these patients were classified as frail and ultimately being associated with all the negative outcomes that I've mentioned previously. In regards to the functional events, the freed frailty criteria and the VES 13 both showed that the probability of a functional event was higher in the frail group compared to the non-frail, and this was true at the one, two, three, four, and five-year intervals. In terms of the time to functional event, based on the freed frailty criteria, there was 26 months in the non-frail and about 14 months in the frail. Based on the VES 13, there's a greater disparity between the time to functional event with 36 months in the non-frail and only 13 months in the frail population. According to the Balducci criteria, there was actually no statistical difference between the functional events between the frail and non-frail groups. And then looking at the second outcome, which is the mortality, all three tools demonstrated a significant prognostic value for overall survival and this was true early term and long term. The risk of death was increased in the frail group again at the one, two, three, four and five year intervals and by the fifth year we're looking at a doubling in the mortality rate in the patients that were classified frail. There were 14 deaths in this study that were classified as tumour independent and even analysing these tumour independent deaths there was a strong significant prognostic value for overall survival using the Balducci criteria and the VES 13. One thing to note is that there was poor concordance in classifying frailty and only 9% of patients were frail in all three evaluations. So in summary, what this article is showing us is that the VES 13 can be used to predict mortality and functional decline. And this means we can have an easily reproducible patient-reported survey that's used to prognosticate elderly patients with cancer. However, as we can see from the poor concordance between the three frailty assessment tools, there is no single best tool to identify frailty and each frailty scale, as we've seen, incorporates different contributing factors. Fantastic. Thank you. Look, I have to admit I'm the first person to throw out a, oh yeah, this patient looks frail. Clinician gestalt when it comes to frailty, is it a thing? Is it a thing that I should be saying? In terms of this paper, all of the kind of metrics of frailty seem to be measuring slightly different things. You know, maybe we could touch on what frailty really is. Is that a, is that, it's not an easy question to kind of answer, but maybe we can talk about that. I agree. I think one of the difficulties that we have in clinical practice is that we do use the term frail quite readily without actually having a proper definition. And one of the I guess conclusions from having done a lot of study into frailty is that there is no standardised tool and there is no single definition. I think it incorporates many, many components as to the definition of frailty, but time and time again I think 
it's been proven um, quite thoroughly that what we term as frail as clinicians is not really, it does not correlate at all when we're using these scales. Yeah, I agree. I think the component of my patient assessment that I probably neglected the large part of my ED registrar career doing a geriatrics term helped, but I don't think it cemented it until I had like grandfather pass away. And I sort of think about it and kind of like, well, what sort of, you know, he was frail. And then I sort of got me thinking about the patients that I see and I didn't really understand it. So I looked it up and there's a lot of really interesting data, particularly with the high consequence decisions that we make about sending patients home to unsupervised environments. Representation rates are a very highly scrutinised key performance indicator of a lot of EDs. And this might be one of the reasons why we fail. I think looking at the literature, there were just three points that I really wanted to touch on. Aside from not having a definition, making research really difficult in this area, from my understanding, at least, and correct me if I'm wrong, comorbid conditions do not indicate the presence or absence of frailty in isolation. Physical disability is not a reflection of frailty. And whilst frailty increases with age, it's not a consequence of ageing. Remembering those three things kind of makes me just check myself because it does, that then allows me with the gestalt just to make sure that I'm not overcalling, undercalling, having biases implicate uh, my bedside decision making. And then obviously you can go further into is this patient then actually frail by a clinical study definition? And if so, frail, how frail? Which is kind of what we really want in the ED is etiology. So are they frail? Why are they frail? And then severity of the disease, because then we can then base our disposition decisions around those two. Just touching on that, I think that raises an important point or really two important points. It was interesting to note that the three frailty scores, you know, all performed very well in the study and yet the concordance in them was minimal, you know, only 9% overlap between the three. I was wondering, Bratati, what that means or the diagnosis of, or, you know, the syndrome of frailty broadly. You know, as an extension of that, I wonder if you could tell us more about why quantifying frailty a little bit more properly is, should be an important thing to an emergency physician. There's a lot to unpack in that question. First of all, I think the concordance is poor because the reason that I went through each of the scales is because we're probably not familiar with what each of them entails. And as you can see, there's many different components that contribute to frailty. And to be honest, because they've all given us a prediction of mortality, they all do do a good job. They're just all looking at different aspects. And I think that brings into question which frailty scores do we use do we use any of them in the emergency setting or even in other settings? And I think that's a very important question because I think there's a lot of frailty scores. If you do look them up, there's many assessments that you could use. And I think for different disciplines, each of them have different value. Um, for example, for patients who have pulmonary hypertension or interstitial lung disease, you can just use a six-minute walk test and it's an indicator in and of itself of frailty and it has significant prognostic value um, and it can be used for risk stratification. But if you then use the six-minute walk test in a population that we're looking at here, where most of them are early-stage breast cancers, it would probably have very little meaning, if any at all. So I think it's important to quantify frailty because it does have such immense prognostic value and even an economic value for looking at the number of hospitalizations that it increases because of the presence of frailty, I think it has a huge economic burden as well. I think it's important to define the presence of it, but I think the definition is so difficult is because in varying disciplines, it would really vary. Thank you. And I, I think it really sort of 
makes us think about our own cognitive biases. I mean, my bias has always been around performance status, and and you know, you suddenly reflected that the ECOG of most of the patients in this study was either a zero or a one. ECOG, for those of you who are unaware, is essentially a performance status metric used in oncology, and there's another one called the Karnofsky score, which essentially quantifies just how functional a patient is. So an ECOG of zero is a person who is able to live their life essentially as they were prior to having a cancer, whereas an ECOG of four is someone who's moribund and bedbound for more than 50% of the day. You know, for me, whenever I've been making treatment decisions, I think that that sort of a functional status assessment has played a major role. And so it's very interesting to see that a lot of these people, despite being relatively functional, can have very poor outcomes if you subject them to significant stresses. It's obvious to me how sort of frailty works in ED and why it's important. Prof, how do you use it in your in your area of practice? I think as Bratati said, the first thing to acknowledge is maybe we don't do it very well and it's hard to know exactly what you're measuring. But I guess in the oncology setting... I mean, I think about it, and I hope that I make good decisions based on that, but I'm not formally measuring anything. Frailty in that sense is how will that person respond to a stressor? And the stressor that I'm mainly thinking about is me. It's me saying, I think this person should have chemotherapy. You know, and someone say, oh, so-and-so is a good 80, and I'm going, well, they may not be a good 80 after I've dealt with them, you know. So, <laughs> um, so it's all about that, you know, weighing up those pros and cons of how well would, might they tolerate something like chemotherapy, and it's a complex matrix because there'll be situations where chemotherapy is not going to improve things very much anyway, so it's a bit of a no-brainer, and there'll be situations where it might make a big difference. But if you think that the person's going to die in the next two years, there's no point in giving them adjuvant treatment to try and prevent a cancer recurrence because that's something that plays out over many, many years. Um, So I think it's something that we frequently get wrong, and you can probably get it wrong in both directions. So I, I had a patient recently who was 70 plus she wasn't in her 80s but she wasn't young you know she was in her 70s and she'd had a breast cancer in the past like 10 or 15 years before and had some chemotherapy and then she had this other one this triple negative breast cancer you know potentially nasty thing I thought she should have chemotherapy and she she seemed pretty fit but I was a bit nervous about it and in fact she had this chemotherapy and had fewer side effects than a 40 year old and at surgery, there was no cancer left. So she's, you know, she's been, she's been cured. And, you know, I could have sort of wondered whether she, was, whether she was fit enough or not. So I guess that probably says that there is a role for some kind of instrument. Do you find that your assessment correlates well with the patient's own self-reflected assessment? That's where I struggle with it, right? So, you know, I'm thinking, well, in my experience, the last dozen 85-year-old patients I've treated with pneumonia and septic shock have all had or outcomes and this patient has by my bedside assessment it looks frail and you know I obviously can't do any of the more functional tests because they're bed bound and quite sick at the time and this is kind of the practical side of things and sort of deciding well I think they're frail and the family's like no no they're not frail at all they're great and then I'm sort of stuck there I'm just curious in a different medical context altogether do you find that patients when you ask them to self-assess or if you do that if, if that's part of how your clinic works or how your decision-making process works. Is there much correlation there? And Ritati as well, do you find that in your clinical practice too? I think one thing to unpack is I think you're right, Prof Wilkin, when it can go one way or another when we're using the frailty scores. I think when, and, and this might be different for when you see the patients, but in the emergency setting and in the inpatient setting, I think we sometimes forget that that's not how the patient normally is. So when we see them as frail or they look terrible and they fail the end of bed assessment, as we all say, 
that's not really a true reflection of who this person is or what they were like even four or five days ago. So I think part of the benefits of using a tool, particularly in the emergency setting, that's quite easy, is you might have a patient and have a cognitive bias that they have a malignancy, they're elderly, and therefore we should put limitations of care in place and not do this, that and the other thing. And you use one of these assessments and they actually score zero or maybe one for their age, they would actually do well. Like if we're looking at even five-year marks, these patients would do well. And so maybe we should be sending them to ICU maybe we should be doing more. There's obviously the other end of the spectrum where they're scoring very highly and they have a very high one-year mortality rate, but I think that's why it's adding more value to what we're seeing because what we often see is not what's real. Of course, yeah. So I just want to, I guess, make this a little bit more tangible with maybe a clinical scenario. Let's just say either on the wards or in emergency, we've got an 80-year-old lady who maybe has a breast cancer who's in septic shock. And I think it'd be useful to go around the room with this one. Are you guys going to use the VES-13 as a means of trying to stratify this patient in terms of you know, how much you're going to intervene? So no. And the reason for that being, and I think one of the big things to talk about when we talk about frailty is I don't think we can underestimate its value for prognosticating But what it lacks is what I always say about shared language. So when I say someone has an ECOG performance status of zero, I think most people in the room would know what I'm speaking about and that this is a very functional person that we're speaking about. But if I were to quote any one of the tools, even though they're so validated in many studies, and use that as a judgment for frailty and to either pursue treatment or not pursue treatment, it wouldn't have any meaning. So I think that's the fallback of referring to frailty and referring to any of the tools that I've mentioned is that there is a lack of shared language and I think that's an important thing to to notice. But I do think it's worthwhile to measure frailty and that should, I think most people are aware by now that it does have prognostic value and that it's useful. It's such a complex decision and I can see the bell curve of my clinical performance when I look back and reflect. I went from being super nervous about putting limitations on anyone's care to then probably being a bit overzealous to then pulling back. Once I did an ICU term or, or an inpatient team's term and I'm like, oh, like they actually do fine. Like I don't really, I'm a very, have a very weird perception of how unwell they are. I can probably tell you how sick they are at that point, but if you'd asked me to guess how sick they'd be in six hours, I'm terrible like like a horrible correlation and so definitely the last 12 months 18 months of my clinical practice I tend to be a lot more cautious with implementing ad hoc limitations on care I tend to really seek consensus opinion and if that happens in the middle of the night then I'm calling my intensive care colleagues I'm calling my other ED colleagues and, and you know if there's a medical registrar depending on where I'm working I'm asking second and third opinions purely because I don't really know what I'm talking about. I don't think I'm good enough to, to make that call solely on someone's single metric. And what that, that has a twofold effect. You know, it, it allows me different perspectives. It allows someone else to come in. But also it demonstrates to the family that I'm being proactive. Even if the decision is not to do anything actively, I'm making an active decision to seek out whether that, that inaction is the appropriate treat. And I found that if the conclusion then is this patient doesn't require or isn't appropriate or wouldn't benefit from further treatment, I find that if I've taken that path, everyone's a lot happier, including myself. I still remember the first patient I palliated in the ED at four o'clock in the morning, and that was years ago. 
And that stuck with me because I think on some level I'm not sure if I made the right call. And so, yeah, I'm very cautious about that and I approach it with a great deal of trepidation. Yeah, I like the idea of talking to other clinicians, nurses. I'm lucky that I work with a nurse in the clinic and I will often think, I'm not sure that Mrs so-and-so is fit for chemotherapy and I'll sort of run it past a nurse as well. I think specifically in the emergency department, it's obviously different if you've got a patient that, you know, you've seen for a long period of time who's going through chemotherapy or something. But I find it quite interesting that that VES score looks at actually what the patient self-reports as their own frailty level. Because I often find that when I'm stuck in a predicament in the middle of the night in ED, just giving the patient all the information and having a chat with them really helps to illuminate things from the get-go. I think it can be challenging when you've got family members who are emotionally driven and obviously very distressed in an acute setting. But just sitting down and talking with the patient a lot of the time leaves me in a position where I say, actually, I'm going to advocate for this patient because they're telling me that they would like to give vasopressors a go or they're usually actually really well. Like, I find that that conversation often takes a very confusing, stressful, oh, my gosh, what the hell am I going to do with this 80-year-old to suddenly being like, okay, within reasonable limits... Although ICU's going to say, well, they're 80, I'm going to advocate for the patient because they've told me they want to try it and they're this good at home or whatever else. I just think it's interesting that that score actually has taken that self-reported functional status and put some weight on that. From my point of view, I actually really like the score. I think the population that I would use it would be select. You know, if, if it was someone who's very obviously of a very high baseline then I don't think you need it to say that you know starting inotrope suppressors is a good idea. Similarly when it's the doubly incontinent demented patient from the nursing home the VES could be pristine and I still wouldn't start them on inotropes because it's just it's not going to lead to a good outcome and you know we have plenty of research that that tells us that. I think it's in the in-between group perhaps a little bit more uncertain you know they've come from home but they look you know they don't have much muscle mass they're a little bit cachectic and I'm not really sure what to do. I think that's where this is something that's really readily um, implementable. Every time that I make a treatment limitation decision or a withdrawal of treatment decision, I'm sitting either with the patient or with a family member, and before telling them what I think, I tend to ask them what their self-perception, or you know, in the case of a family member, what their perception of their relative is of their quality of life and their function. And for me, I think that both helps to crystallise things in my mind, but it also helps them to crystallise in their mind that, you know, actually maybe putting a tube down their throat isn't a good idea because they weren't enjoying their life to begin with. And I think that this is something that I can really easily incorporate into that. If I'm starting by just saying, what's your perception of your life? I'm just trying to understand you a little bit better because I only met you five minutes ago. Then this is something that I can really easily slide into that as an assessment and then I'll have a validated tool for justifying my decision making either way. Before we all start using the VES 13, I'm aware that this patient's got a few limitations that they do again discuss. Could you comment on those for us? Some of the limitations of this article, one I've alluded to is that it is a single centre study. So its ability to be generalised to the general medical oncology population is definitely limited. Most of the patients were early stage and most of them had breast cancer up to 80%. 
or even higher actually, I think it was 88%. So whether tumor subtype will make a difference to the results is something that's not explored and I think it would be important if we're talking about a medical oncology population in general. The other thing is that the treating oncologists weren't blinded to whether the patient scored frail or non-frail as well as how which end of the spectrum they fell into, so whether they were scoring very, very highly or very low. And I think that's important because as a person who's treating these patients, there might be a conscious effort to address the frailty that's present and that's right there and you know exactly what components are contributing to their frailty and whether it guided their treatment decisions in general is an important thing to look at. This was, I guess, commented on by the article itself is that one of the downfalls is that they weren't blinded to what the assessments were. I think it is useful to note as well that there, there have been a few other papers in this area which look at different populations. I, I'm aware of a few others in the cancer population subtypes and then also uh, in the geriatric population more broadly. Probably requires some more research, but it is promising, I think, thus far. It's interesting that they picked eligible patients aged above or equal to 70 years when we've said before that you know frailty is, increases with age but is not age-dependent. So, Britani, have you got any take-home points for us from this paper? So I've got a couple. First of all, even though it's something that most people will roll their eyes at, I think recognising frailty is very important. I think studies like this and similar ones can show us that frailty can be assessed at the bedside and it can be easy and it does not need to be a comprehensive assessment. We need to look away from just looking at performance status as the only indicator for frailty because I think people can be nearly independent but still be frail. And the last point, which is probably food for thought, is that shared language is important for information to be clinically relevant, and we probably need a standardised frailty assessment tool prior to using it in clinical settings. Amazing. Thanks. Now the segment everyone's been looking forward to, we have Kit's Corner. I'm constantly humoured by the fortuitousness of the author William Brady, who co-wrote ECGs for the Emergency Physician with Amal Mutu. I learned an equally appropriate fact recently, the world record holder with the slowest resting heart rate at 27 beats per minute is a man by the name of Martin Brady. More on surnames in a future episode. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast. And once again, what an episode. 
Don't forget, your podcast needs you. Please, please get in touch with your questions, comments, or suggestions for future podcasts. We are still contactable on Westmead ED Journal Club at gmail.com. Please get in touch. Thanks again to all of our contributors, Professor Wilkin, Britati, Sarah, whose time and energy today have all been extremely appreciated. And of course, to our team, Pramod, Caroline, Shreyas, Harry, and Samoda, whose contributions are always invaluable. A particular thanks to Harry, who's come today after a chaotic night shift. We will miss you all, but don't worry. We'll be back with another scintillating topic next month. Stay safe and see you next time. <laughs>